All right, and if you want to open up to Isaiah chapter 42, I'll start with verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Silah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by the ways they have not have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. And I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. But for those who trust in idols, who say to the images, you are our gods, you, we will, will be turned back in shame. This is a, a song written by Isaiah, and it comes on the heels of one of the first servant songs that Isaiah writes. And over the last three weeks, we've been going through a series on Isaiah called Desert People and kind of talking about how Isaiah has these hopeful expectations for God's people. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, what we find is that Isaiah is kind of preparing God's people for this Assyrian threat, and he's writing to them this warning about these things that are going to happen, calling them to return to God's ways. Chapter 40 uh, seems to kind of turn a corner, and it takes place many years later, and it's no longer the Assyrian threat, but it's them returning from another threat, the Babylonians, and they're returning from captivity and coming back to their home, and from Isaiah 40 to 66, what we find are these hopeful expectations where Isaiah is saying that we have a future together. Isaiah's very name means the Lord saves, and as he's writing to these people who've returning from captivity, one of the things that he's communicating in these these songs and in these kind of prophecies is he's saying the same way that we're able to return home from our captivity, the way that we've been freed from this Cyrus the Great and been able to come back home, this is just a foretaste of what God is doing in this world and what God is going to do through his Messiah. And he starts to talk about this this person called the servant that is going to come into the world. And we understand that as Jesus as the Christ that would come into the world to bring about true freedom, true life, life eternal, truly returning home to being with our God. And Isaiah is saying there are these hopeful expectations of what God is doing for his people in each and every time period. What was true for the people in that day is also true for us, that God is doing a work through our community there's, this is going somewhere. There's these hopeful expectations that God is moving through us, bringing about healing, salvation, and restoration for the world. Isaiah, as he's writing, a couple of things he wants the people to know is that he wants us to live a life that outlasts our earthly expiration date, to live a life with eternity, the perspective of eternity. What we're a part of is a kingdom that is eternal. It's a local expression here, but there's something historic and global and eternal about what we are doing as God's people and his church. Isaiah wants us to know more about God and more about ourselves than ever before. 
So these are words where he is saying, this is who God is, this is what his character is like, and this is what humanity is, and this is what we're like. And as we interact with God, we become more and more the kind of people God wants us to be. He molds us and he shapes us to be a certain kind of people. So for the last three weeks, uh, we've been talking about this idea of desert people. Because the people of God return to this place that's a desert, and they're trying to just start life again in a place where life doesn't grow. The first servant song we looked at had this theme of, uh, uh, of that God is up to something new. There's something new that is taking place, a new work that is happening. Do you perceive it? Are you in tune with it? Do you realize that life with God, there's endless possibilities, there's mercies that are new every morning? And with this newness, God does something new in a desolate place where life can't exist. And so this happens inside of the souls of people when, when we feel dead inside, when we feel like we have maybe lost everything, things have just uh, come to an end, and all of a sudden there's this new life that bursts forth in us. And then the same thing that happens with the church community in a place where it's hard to do church, it's hard to start a church, it's hard to get a church going, God is doing something new here among us. In the second week, we looked at how God not only does uh, something new, but he does it in a place where, uh, where life can't happen. He makes a way in the desert, a way in the wasteland. And when it happens, people can say, it's only because God did it. And we see these miracles where God breathes life into communities and people. And it brings him the glory, and people come to know who he is through his works that we participate in. And then last week, we talked about how God will continue with us in difficult places, the midst of difficult circumstances. He doesn't promise us smooth sailing, that life is going to be easy. But in the midst of our hardships and troubles, God is with us. And desert people can thrive in a barren place. And this week, I want to talk about this passage that I just read, this servant song. And it's all about worship. It's about worshiping God. It's almost a call to worship for God's people. He's saying, sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. Not just worship, but something that is new, to sing a new song. I'd like to suggest that new songs of praise should arise whenever God is doing a new work. New songs of praise should arise whenever God is doing a new work. In fact, you could say like, you can look at, you know when a movement is dead because people stop writing songs. You can see a denomination is in decline or dead because people stop writing songs. We belong to this um, tribe that's from Indiana. It's the denomination that we're affiliated with called Church God down in Anderson, Indiana. We don't talk a ton about it, um, but we are affiliated with this denomination that's been in decline for like 30 years. And it, it started like in the late 1800s and it like took off and it expanded. They planned churches all over America and all over the world. And they wrote hymns and they wrote these amazing hymns, these beautiful new songs about what God was doing. And then like mid-century continued, there was this man named Bill Gaither. Some of you know it. I know Mike Peck loves Bill Gaither. Uh, wrote these old hymns. And then this lady named Sandy Patty. All these new songs that were being written for kind of like our tribe and our movement. And nothing has been written in like 30 years. So we just look back and love our old songs. <laughs> when God does something new, there's new songs that are written. There's this new work that is happening. Our hope is here at Desert City is this new life brings about these new songs that we sing. Sometimes maybe it's an old song that we just sing in a new way. But there's something new that is being sung, being participated in, and God is speaking again 
In verses 10 through 12, let me just read this passage again. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. So this is not just a new song, but it's something that's supposed to be spread to the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. So going down to the sea from where they're living, this would go west to the Mediterranean. These songs go west. And then he says, let the wilderness, the desert, and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Well, Kedar is this descendant of Ishmael. And if you know the story in Genesis, they go east and they go south. So he's putting this information in there to say these are directional movements of this movement of God, these new songs that are being sung that are going to the ends of the earth. They're going east, they're going west. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. Now, this is a song about singing a new song, but there's eight kind of, I don't know, actions that take place. Go to this next slide. In this, if you want to underline this in your Bible, it says to sing, to praise, to raise voices, to rejoice, to sing for joy, to shout, to give glory, and to proclaim his praise in these two verses. Isaiah is trying to communicate something here to God's people about how we worship God. Now, this is a little bit hard for me because I have zero musical talent. Um, also, I have zero rhythm and dance skills. And I married a dancer, and weddings are always super awkward because I'm like the pastor, and I never like, want to go out and dance, and she like, is a total dancer. I, music, like, I'm not musical. So like this idea of like worshiping God through music, it's not something I love. Like, I should have been, like, a Presbyterian. Like, I could just, you know, talk, like, recite things instead of. But, but to worship God musically. One of my most embarrassing stories comes from singing. Uh, I went to a Christian school here in Phoenix, and we went on this mission trip uh, when I was a senior in high school. And we went down to Juarez, Mexico, and we were working um, on uh, this YWAM base, and they, were, they put, like, two teams, they made our class into two teams. Like, one class was, like, the musically talented people that could get up in front of people, and they were artistic and creative. And then they put, like, all the grunt workers in the other one. So I was put in the grunt worker group. Um, surprise. And uh, we were doing, we were, like, building walls, like, helping kind of rebuild this orphanage that we're working on. And the other group would, like, go out to all these different places and do, like, you know, uh, like worship services, and, and they finally had something for like the grunt workers to not just build. We were going to go into a, uh, it's like a drug rehab uh, center in Juarez, and so it was like pretty, pretty rough, rough crew of people um, that we went to, and as we were going there, like some of us were going to just kind of share like a testimony, and we were going to do music, and so they're like, we need someone to like lead music, and like we're all looking around. It's a bunch of like football players. Like nobody wanted to do it, and I was like, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll lead, I'll lead worship for us. And there was this song called Great Is He. It was, like, so, so hot back in the 90s. And uh, I remember, like, getting up in front of this group, like, really rugged group of, um, of, of addicts, these people that were getting out of, uh, you know, really terrible situations, getting rehabbed back into to life. And I, I get up and I sing. And it's one of those moments where, you know, I know, like, like someone has to do it. And I feel like God has said, Jared, you should do this. And I get up in front of everyone and I lead worship, a cappella. <laughs> and the spirit of God just falls on me. And I am in the zone. And I am singing. And it's like, 
oh, I just like, I'm good at, I should think about doing this. I am so, <laughs> this is going so well. It's going so well. And so like we get done with music and then like the speaker comes up and like I go and I, I sit down and I'm sitting next to my friend, Michael Fay, who's one of our, the pastors in Arcadia. And he's looking at me and he's like, dude, that was like the worst thing I've ever heard. And I was like, what? That was awesome. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, dude, it was so awkward and hard to hear. And I was like, well, do you know what? They loved it. It blessed them. And he goes, you should have saw their faces. And he's like, they're like looking around like, what? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> like, I thought I like nailed it. And it's like, no, it was bad. And we got back that night and we're like debriefing and like the leader in our group was one of the teachers and saying, we really need someone from the other group to come and lead songs for us because we don't have anybody and like didn't bring me up. And I was devastated, like super embarrassing. Singing for me is always a challenge. I love, I love music. I just have no, like, you don't want to stand next to me in worship because it's just not a pretty sound. It's not a joyful noise. <laughs> and I read passages like this, and I'm, like, worshiping God with, you know, a shout of praise of, of singing to him. And, and yow, that's just not me. Now, worship is something that we're called to. We're created to worship God. And we know that worship is more than just music. And you have, like, Romans 12 where Paul's writing, and he says that we should offer our bodies as uh, as living sacrifices, as our spiritual act of worship. We worship God with more than just music. How we live our lives, how we work, uh, what we contribute to, the way that we just give of ourselves, our devotion is all worship. But there's something about worshiping God with music. And there's something that Isaiah is calling his people to here that I think is just absolutely essential. When a church gathers on a Sunday morning, or when anytime we gather in public to sing and declare who God is, something powerful happens. And Isaiah is saying to his people, do this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Proclaim, praise, lift your voices. First thing I've come to, to realize in worship, even though I'm not good at it and can't lead it. Here's what happens. Worship, worship redirects our hope to eternity. It redirects our hope to eternity. And here's what I mean by that. It fixes our eyes on something else. And our troubles, when we come into an environment of worship with God, all the things that we carry, all the troubles, all the burdens tend to just melt away. They just go away. We fix our eyes on uh, eternal hope. Something inside of us is released. We find a true freedom in worship. And, and I've noticed this in times in my life where I've gone through things that are super painful super confusing, very frustrating. I come into just a worship environment and all of a sudden it's like those things start to melt as we're in the presence of our creator. And we fix our eyes on something above ourselves. It doesn't mean our, our, the things that we're going through are easy in any way, but we fix our eyes on something else. These light and momentary troubles, we see there's glory coming with eternity. I think the best way I could describe it is to use a sports analogy. Football season is about to start. Um, I love going to Cardinals games. If anyone has tickets, just throwing it out there. Uh, I have a friend that has tickets on the 50-yard line, like in the first row, and I've gotten to go before, and it is quite the experience when you're sitting that close to a football game. You can like hear Larry Fitzgerald talking. 
Um, at that point, you could hear Bruce Arians saying all sorts of bad things to people, curse words, that kind of thing. Like, you're in the game. And what you see is when you're that close to the field, uh, the players are massive, and the field feels very small. And you're watching everything unfold, and it's happening so fast that you can't really tell what's going on. You can feel the energy of it. You can feel um, the intensity. But, like, it's kind of hard to watch the game. Before you know it, like, a, a receiver breaks out and catches a pass down the field, and you're like, what just happened? And you're looking up on the big screen to try to see it. Like, you're in the thick of it, and it's super fun, but it's hard to watch the game. But if you go to a Cardinals game and you sit up, uh, like, in the upper deck, and you look down at the field, what you'll find is that the field seems massive, and the players seem really small. And all of a sudden, you're able to see formations. You're able to see how the defense is lining up, what kind of defense they're in. You see the plays that the offense is running, the routes that the receivers are running, uh, the, the offense alignment schemes for the run game. All of it starts to make sense. Like there's perspective where you're like, oh, here's what's happening. I can actually watch and observe. I've been removed, and I have this different perspective. And I feel like in, in some sort of way, when we come together and we worship, when we have this environment of 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 fixing our eyes on God. There's this corporate worship experience. And we're, we're living life and we're in the thick of it and we can feel the intensity of life. All of a sudden, we're, we're almost like brought up to this upper level where we can see perspective. Our hope is in things eternal. And because of eternity, all of the things that we're going through in this present moment start to make a little bit more sense. There's a plan here. There is a story that's unfolding. This isn't the end of the story. There's things I'm seeing that are happening now down the line because we have this God who is eternal and sovereign that our eyes are fixed on. And this is something that happens in worship. When we come to worship, our troubles melt away. It doesn't mean that they're easy, but we let them melt like wax. We redirect our hope on eternity, on our eternal God. Second thing is that worship Worship reforms our desires to the one worthy object. It reforms our desires, the things that we long for, the things that we feel like we need, to the one worthy object. And here's the thing about worship. Everybody worships something. Even atheists. You might say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, in gods or anything divine. Yet an atheist still worships something. There is something, uh, many things, that we give our hearts to, our desires to, our resources to, our devotions to. Uh, it, we, we worship all sorts of things. And what we find is the more you, you worship something, the more you give time to it, the more that you uh, give resources to something. If it's not the right object, the eternal object, if it's not God, what you're going to do is being left discouraged and disappointed. Idols always promise and underdeliver. This is what it's like to be a Phoenix Suns fan. Super discouraging. All sorts of hope. It never delivers. And you buy tickets. You buy like the, yeah. It, but the same thing happens. We all, we all have things that we, we worship and we give our lives to. But when we come to a place like this and we, we, we reform our desires to the one true thing that deserves our worship that actually allows us to be content in this life, to let us experience things that are eternal, he, God reforms reforms our desires. There's all sorts of unintended consequences when we worship after things of this world. Like we, might, we might say, I want to, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not intentionally doing this. I'm creating idols out of things like my self-image. 
And the more that we pour into that, the more we find that we become vain. Or maybe it's my, my own you know, net worth or my wealth, and we pour into it, and we put it in front of relationships, and before we know it, we're greedy. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, there's all sorts of things that we, we give ourselves to that have unintended consequences, and the promise is never what it delivers. And it ends up leading us astray to some other place. The other thing that we find is that because of our idols, because we, we have all these desires that we, we chase after, um, I think that that's what creates so much pain in our world. When you see people uh, fighting and having conflicts over different things, you can usually trace it back to the idols, whether it's idols of a culture, the idols of a person. We pursue these things, we give our lives to them, and then they never deliver. But when we come to a place like this and we gather and we sing these praises to God and we declare who he is, it reforms our desires to the one true thing that can meet our desires, God. I love it that Charles Spurgeon said this, and it comes to these desires. He says, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of our creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. We just live with this longing. We live with this, uh, this, this feeling that we are, we are not right. There's something more that we need. And then we come to a place of worship, and we sit in the presence of our creator, of God. And those desires are reformed to the one thing that can meet our desires. And the third thing is that worship, it recalibrates our hearts for God's purposes. So it redirects our eyes, our hopes, it reforms the things that we long for. But then it recalibrates something inside of us for the one true thing, the one true purpose of why we were created. Worship recalibrates our hearts for God's purposes. James Smith wrote a book on worship, and it says, you are what you love. And here what, here's what tends to happen. When, when we love something, it forms us. Our devotion, our habits, everything that we pursue, it forms us to be its own, kind of in its own image. But when we come to God, and we love God, and we give him his, our worship, he recalibrates us to be more like him. James Smith says this in his book. He says, worship works from the top down. You might say, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Coming together in worship is absolutely important. We worship God because he deserves it. We come to him and we bring him glory. We declare who he is. But it's in those moments of worship that we truly connect with God. And he meets us here and does work on us as well, redirecting our hope to him, reforming our desires, recalibrating our heart for his purposes in this world. I was in uh, Lebanon in Beirut back in 2011, and if you've ever been to Beirut, you'll find it's a beautiful city. Um, it's also a city that's been just destroyed by warfare. Uh, back when I was a child, some of you know, like the, the civil war that was happening in Lebanon that just destroyed Beirut. 
Uh, since then, it's been rebuilt. It used to be called the Paris of the Mediterranean. Um, when I was there, it was uh, not long after another kind of war had broken out. And so we were staying in a, a really nice hotel, and then the hotel next to us would be like bombed out. There'd be bullet holes all over it. Um, when the Civil War started there, it wasn't just two kind of groups fighting each other. It was like four or five groups fighting each other. So super confusing, um, very violent, very volatile situation. And we were working with a group for Heart, called Heart for Lebanon um, that does kind of relief and development work all throughout the country of Lebanon. Uh, but we got to go to a church service in the middle of this neighborhood. And like you would have never imagined that there would be a church in this neighborhood, just kind of seeing uh, just everything else that was built up around it. And I remember um, going there, hearing kind of the story of how volatile the situation is, how many people are enemies in this place uh, for all sorts of religious reasons, for political reasons. Um, there, there's, it's a volatile situation still. But on a Sunday morning, I watched is a very small room, smaller than this room. People walked in off the neighborhood, out of the neighborhood, walked to church, came together, and just sang songs praising God. It was amazing to see a church in that context because when you go to church, you're making a declaration to a community of who you put your hope, your trust in, of where salvation is found, of where your allegiance lies. It's a statement. And sometimes we forget about that here. I love our religious freedom. Sometimes the unintended consequences is we lose the urgency of understanding that this is such a blessing to come together and worship in a public place. And I remember seeing that church in Lebanon worship. And I thought, what an, this is so formative for their lives spiritually. What they do here on Sunday matters, and it lets the whole neighborhood know who God is. They declare this gospel message of who Jesus is, what he's doing in this world. And it just completely shifted my focus of thinking, like, how much do we take this for granted? How much do we take it for granted just gathering and worshiping? We just do it so often without an urgency. So often we just do it as an, another thing that we check off. But there's something so powerful that happens when churches gather. We're a local expression of a church. There's churches throughout our city. But something is shaken loose in a community when a church gathers for worship. Today we're going to end our time with worship. Uh, we usually end our time with communion, but today we're not going to do that. We're just going to spend some time singing. So Tim and the band are going to come back up. And, and my hope is that these words from Isaiah, this call to worship, is that we would come to God today as a community of people, a church, a congregation, and sing to him. That these words would be uh, our prayer um, and that in the midst of that, we would just redirect our hope with whatever we're feeling right now, the weight of the world that we're in the thick of it, the pain that we're feeling, tension, stress. We would just say, let us turn our eyes to Jesus. Let us focus on him in these moments. The things that we feel anxious about, let's just lay those at God's feet right now. Let us have God just reform our desires, that we would desire him that he would meet our needs. All the things that we chase after that leave us exhausted, we would come to him and say, Lord, just meet our needs today. And that he would recalibrate our hearts as, as individuals and as a community for his purposes in this world. Let me pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for your word, how you speak to us, how you, you call us home, you remind us of who we are. You form us. 
Today, Lord, we come before you. We turn our eyes to you. We want to have an encounter with you today. We want to give you our hearts. You're worthy of our worship, of our desires, of our focus. We take this time now, Lord, to just declare who you are. You make things grow in desert places. You work in miraculous ways. You stick with us in the midst of challenging circumstances. And we just want to come before you today, Lord, and say thank you. You are good. You are God. You are our King. So we praise you and worship you now. It's in your powerful name we pray.